Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today we have a new episode of Postscript, a series of podcasts in which Lily Gorin and I allow authors to connect their scholarship to contemporary political events. Today's Postscript explores race, anger, and citizenship. After a Twitter exchange with Dr. Davin Phoenix at the University of Irvine about how he would have written his book a bit differently after the deaths of Mr. George Floyd and Ms. Breonna Taylor and the rise of the national protest movement in the United States, I reached out to Davin, Christina Beltran at NYU, and Frank Wilderson at UC Irvine because their books engage race, anger, and citizenship in such compelling ways. Welcome, Christina. Hi. Thanks for having me. Welcome, Frank. Hi, Susan. Great to be here. Welcome, Davin. Hello. Happy to be part of the conversation. I'll introduce you all in more detail over the course of the podcast, but we'll start with Dr. Davin Phoenix, who's an associate professor of political science at the University of California, Irvine. He works at the intersection of black politics, political psychology, political behavior, public opinion, urban politics, and religion and politics. And his diverse publications reflect this depth and breadth. For example, he's published on African-American social identity in the National Political Science Review and has an article on the effects of political and racial church homogeneity on Asian-American political participation, forthcoming in the Journal of Social and Political Psychology. Some listeners will remember his conversation with Heath Brown on his 2019 Cambridge University press book, The Anger Gap. How Race Shapes Emotion in Politics, or they may have seen his June 2020 op-ed in the New York Times, Anger Benefits Some Americans More Than Others, Much More Than Others. The book integrates work from political psychology, black identity, and political behavior to argue that not all anger is created equally. In fact, the way in which the emotion state of anger is leveraged in politics widens the participation gap between black and white people. Combining archival research, survey data analysis, and original experiments, he illustrates that the specter of the angry black stereotype and the lack of collective efficacy exhibited by black people, which he labels racial resignation, results in a racial anger gap. Anger consistently mobilizes white Americans towards a wide range of political actions more effectively than African-Americans, who are more consistently mobilized by positive emotions such as pride and hope. Davin, I am so glad you could join the podcast and that you're so articulate on Twitter because that gave me the idea for this episode of Postscript. Um, As you reflect on your book and the intervening years since its publication and maybe longer since you handed in the manuscript, how do you understand the anger gap as instructive for better understanding the dynamics of race in American politics, especially the impact of and reaction to the Black Lives Matters protests? Well, most of the book is centered on why Black people in America 
may not either feel angry in response to political developments or why they may not feel full freedom or full license to express that anger publicly. Uh, but in one chapter of the book, I tried to paint a picture of the specific contours of Black Americans' anger, the ways in which the objects or sources that engender anger among Black people differ from those that engender anger among white folks, or the ways that anger translates to a very different set of actions among African Americans. And I framed this chapter by thinking about Black politics as the politics of bloodshed, to borrow a Huey Newton quote. Uh, so I thought about the ways in which Black people's struggle to attain full citizenship has often been met with violence, but thinking not just about violence as uh, physical brute force, but rather violence as actions and language of a destructive nature used to tear down and eradicate. We can think about Black politics as consistently being politics of violence, right? Specifically, a set of people looking to assert their uh, self-actualization politically in being met with all forms of violence. And so I'm thinking about this current groundswell of activism and also the presidential campaign as showcasing once again Black politics in this moment as the politics of violence, uh, the continued employment of policies, practices, and language of a destructive nature against Black people to tear down or eradicate their claims, demands, their political standing, and even livelihoods and well-being. So if we, of course, see this violence enacted in brute physical terms in the shootings and killings of Black people uh, by both agents of the state and civilians. Uh, but we also bear witness to this violence enacted in a lot of the kind of political responses or the political frames and the media framing of this uh, groundswell of activism. So for instance, we can think about media framings of protests that have been uh, taking place since the spring that really center property damage rather than centering the shooting of black people that have precipitated these protests. Uh, we can think about parties and candidates making appeals to the black electorate it seems to imply that these intractical problems vexing the community can be solved with the vote, a point that's disproven by the very existence of these protests in these first place, protests that are robust in uh, democratic regimes and in Republican regimes alike, whether we're looking at the national level or the local level. And we can see this kind of violence enacted in condemnations or browbeating of today's protests that draw upon collective remembrances and romanticization of the civil rights era of, quote, nonviolent protests. And when we call these protests or remember them as nonviolent, we are systematically ignoring the violence inflicted on the protesters by police officers, by deputized civilians, and by makeshift militias, you know, all factors that we're seeing today. So when I think about how my book can help us think about this moment, as I was developing the argument, uh, a question I would often get in trying to lay out the thesis of this anger gap is, well, what about Black Lives Matter? And so in the book, I tried to make a clear point that Black people often do indeed feel that anger. Uh, it might not be over kind of the specter of tax cuts or one electoral regime overtaking another, but they certainly feel that acute anger over the kind of stakes and consequences of being Black in America. The question is whether they have license to express that anger and how, because of that 
stereotype of being angry while black or the way in which the expressions of black anger are demonized or subject to scrutiny and surveillance and pushback by the state, that expressing that anger itself is a radical act. And so it's no surprise when we see expressions of black anger, it's often in the uh, sites of protests rather than the voting booth. Uh, But I think we can understand in this moment how when black people are pressing, not just out of anger, right, but out of a sense of um, utter fatigue and kind of being pushed past the breaking point, we continue to see various ways in which violence is enacted upon these movements and upon black people individually and collectively. Our continued inability to grapple with that politics of violence, both contemporarily and historically, I think demands that Black people continue to rely on insurgent actions in the U.S. context. And we can also understand why that continued perpetuation of multiple forms of violence can indeed constrain many Black people from freely expressing their grievance within discursive, social, or political spaces. So even as we think about the kind of scope of this current moment of protest, we can consider how many more people might feel uh, intrinsically motivated to join the protests, but feel restrained because they are acutely aware of the profound consequences from joining that movement. And so that's one of the takeaways I tried to make in the book is that for African-Americans and even other uh, racial minority groups that exhibit similar anger gaps, I found, we might tend to look at the history of robust protests, but given these kinds of bounds and the ways in which this uh, politics is often met with violence, we could probably, we're probably limiting profoundly the number of people that are actually participating in these movements. You mentioned the presidential election, and I'm wondering, uh, in your op-ed for the New York Times, you were very specific about laying out some of the things that you thought both Joe Biden and the Democratic Party as a whole could do. And I'm wondering if you would just elaborate a little bit on those. So in this moment when so many people are making the kind of claim and the demands that come behind that of Black Lives Matter. And in this moment when, at least according to polls, we see for the first time a majority of white Americans expressing support for a Black Lives Matter, that is. I said that it would behoove the Democratic Party to recognize that that's not simply just a slogan, but there is a set of policies behind that phrase and that movement. And so inviting people that are architects of that policy platform of Black Lives Matter to have a seat at the table, understanding that there's been groundwork laid to offer frameworks for all types of transformative visions, not just around kind of policing in the carceral state, but kind of the ways in which we uh, redistribute resources, the ways in which we relate to one another. So how can you incorporate within your platform at least some kind of nods to those policies that have been advocated for that range, right, from kind of more piecemeal reform type strategies um, to more uh, transformative, I think I'm trying to use transformative rather than radical, because I think radical is such a loaded term, 
uh, in the way it's often used as a cudgel against white people making claims, it's like, well, this isn't radical. We're just trying to have the full rights, same rights as everyone else. Just having equity. Why is that radical? That's a bit of a tangent. Um, but the vision of abolition that people have articulated, the vision of uh, defunding and redistributing resources to other aspects or uh, aspects of the community, right? These are kind of newly within the discourse of the mainstream politics, but certainly are not new to people that are on the ground mobilizing communities, people that have mobilized around this, theorized around this for years and decades. So, and then also not just thinking about Black lives as kind of the most visible or hyper-visible Black people, but thinking about all Black lives matter, including Black trans lives, Black people with mental impairments, Black people with physical disabilities who are often disproportionately subjects to different forms of violence from the state. And so by moving beyond the slogan and trying to just listen to the people that have engaged in the work of identifying new policy processes, identifying new kind of state relationships to citizens at local or state or even national levels, I think the Democratic Party can show a level of responsiveness to the critical Black voting bloc that can engender a sense of pride and optimism. Uh, emotions that I found have been especially effective at propelling Black people to the polls and to actions in support of political regimes. Uh, thanks. I think Christina wanted to, to, to jump in on this as well. Yeah, no, thanks a lot for, for, for letting me be a part of this conversation. And uh, Davin, one of the things I thought was so great about um, your work and, and the, the op-ed you'd written, which I just think really resonated, was just the fact that there's such emotional limits to what um, you know African-American, other people of color can articulate in terms of their, their, their sort of affective emotional range, right? Like we're allowed to sort of only, you know, not perform anger, not enact anger, um, but, but your point also made me think about, I think about this both even as a professor, I think about the ways that even in the classroom, you know, um, that you walk into the classroom and you're already sort of seen as embodying, as a woman of color, I walk in, I'm sort of the embodiment of bias, right? And I have to sort of find a way to immediately um, render a majority white class comfortable with, you know, sort of that it's a safe space. Like there's a certain way one has to um, just, I, I'm just interested in sort of the emotional limits that are often placed on, on these populations. Um, I guess the question I had, I was just thinking about was, it also seems like there's a range in which we're only allowed to express certain kinds of emotions. So I feel like there's a way in which, um, in my work around looking at um, Latinx migrants, you know, they can be, um, they're subjects who are understood to be suffering and sorrowful, but they're not subjects who are often understood as expressing joy and pleasure. And so I just think there's something really interesting about the sort of limits of what emotional expressions are seen as familiar or valuable politically. And I guess I'm curious about not only the negative affects, but the positive ones. I mean, I feel like so much of um, being at protests here in New York around BLM, there's, there's this mix of rage and, and, and joy in joy yes. in each other, right? Joy and solidarity. And, and like, there's, we don't seem to have a good vocabulary to talk about that, that effective emotional range. And I feel like your work is letting us think about that. And I was just wondering if you had more thoughts about it. It's a long way. To yes, I think that resonates um, quite a bit and thinking about the kind of scope of the conversation and how our work might speak to this moment. That's one thing I think I would 
really draw out further the ways in which even our understanding of emotions is limited and that we don't often kind of identify the parallels across very different emotions. I think what you said about that mix of anger and rage and joy is one that's really critical because it raises the question of whether Black people and perhaps other marginalized groups have that full range to express that joy. It's actually, it's hitting me hard that you would say that. I was just having a conversation with someone about my origins and making transition from the dissertation to the book. And I was struck by a conversation I had with a black student of mine during my first or second year as an assistant professor, where they, and Frank, this might've been a student of yours actually, they asked me, um, basically, is it possible for black people to really feel kind of an unrestrained, unapologetic joy And that question hit me like a ton of bricks because I don't think I had been cognizant of that kind of restraint. Even as I looked back and thought about how I experienced that firsthand much of my life, when do Black people have within public spaces that full freedom to experience the full kind of experience of their emotions both negative and positive. And so I focus on the constraints in expressing a particular type of negative emotion. I do think there's something to be said about the ways in which kind of public imaginings of Black people and the Black experience often do overlook or kind of dismiss simply that Black joy or Black love and Black hope and Black optimism. We see a lot of appeals within politics to Black optimism, and I think it's very limited to kind of... um, you know, using Christian symbolism to say, well, hey, things are not maybe great, but they're getting better and they're getting better and you keep persisting and persevering. And I think that kind of messaging can be easily uh, patronizing and that it denies Black people the full weight of grievance and anguish to say, well, no, we shouldn't be satisfied with the progress made. We shouldn't be satisfied with the progress that the party making this appeal to us has made to advance, quote unquote, civil rights or racial interests, we should still be able to hold on to, you know, a sense of anger and entitlement to better treatment. But I think that kind of messaging even limits the full scope of positive emotions that Black people can feel as they're navigating this kind of stratified society. And I think it's all really important. I don't think that we see these kinds of really committed actions from Black people without some spark of hope. I don't think it's simply anger that's repelling it. There are these positive emotions that propel it as well. But even within kind of the political psychology frameworks I'm operating within, do we really have an understanding of how these negative and positive emotions work together to propel the kinds of actions that are so critical? Frank, you wanted to jump in. Yeah. Hi, Devin. This is Frank. How are you doing? I'm good, Frank. I I wanted to ask you um, about... You, you mentioned the transition from dissertation to book, and I, I was kind of interested in the aha moment for you. In other words, what was happening? I, I have two hats, one as a critical theorist and the other as a creative writer. And sometimes in creative writing exercises, we ask people to do things like, where were you? Well, I'm dating myself. Where were you when John Kennedy was shot? You know, And um, what was going on? And I'm just curious as to the anger gap, how did that come to you as a, as a rubric for a, a lens of interpretation? Um, 
And what's at stake if we don't heed what you're saying? Sure. So I think there's two kind of aha moments for me. The first one is uh, pretty standard, kind of in a second year grad seminar course on political psychology, reading some experimental work that showed that threat messages and cues were a more effective mobilizer of political action than cues emphasizing potential opportunity. And I simply pushed back against that and tried to begin a thesis stating why that might not apply for Black people. And it was a very kind of simple argument I was making. If you're kind of receiving yourself to be on the lower rungs of society and kind of don't have anywhere near the same privileges of people above on uh, higher status, you know, being threatened with something to lose might not be as impactful because you're saying, I don't have much to lose, right? Uh, In contrast, uh, you know, getting an opportunity saying there's a credible chance of gaining something can be a more major shift from your status quo. So I kind of started very basic there, but when I started to write the book, I was in a very different headspace, not thinking about just kind of the psychological orientations or the ways in which how people view their status within the uh, you know rat race shapes their emotional responses. I moved from Michigan, where I got my PhD, to California in August 2014. Did a little cross country trip, and the first stop was St. Louis. I was in St. Louis the night Michael Brown was killed. It's a few miles away in Ferguson, and while I'm processing this news as I'm seeing it on my phone in the lobby, trying to talk to a locksmith because I've been locked out of my car. I was in this hotel and Miley Cyrus is in a concert in St. Louis. And so the hotel was just packed with um, very excited tweens coming from this concert or about to go to this concert. And I thought about the contrast between this kind of excitement present in this lobby and the immense pain and anguish happening just miles away and how it was just these two incredibly different worlds. And I know there's two worlds, but to be living it in that moment and to be feeling so invisible while I'm grappling with this pain over this young man dying just mere miles away from where I happened to be. I think that was as instrumental as anything in really shaping my thinking about the anger gap when I really transitioned into the book. You know, knowing just a couple months from that moment, I would be in front of my first classroom at UCI teaching black politics and Christina, as you said, right, kind of navigating the identities that I brought into that space and knowing that I couldn't simply translate that raw, palpable emotion I felt because I couldn't be subject to criticisms of bias or indoctrination, even though I thought, you know, why should it be biased or indoctrinating to give them a sense of how I'm feeling about these moments as a Black person in America? And so I thought more concretely at this point about those kind of bounds on what I and so many Black people can express or can like let others in on. And so I think that was my real aha moment. And in terms of, I think, the consequences of us kind of collectively not holding space for Black people to express the full range of emotions, I think... If we consider political action to be the act of social beings, if we don't allow people to experience that full range of emotions while still demanding that they be full participants, 
in politics, uh, I think we're denying them a lot of routes. And I think we're being very unrealistic about the types of actions they will or will not be willing to engage. And so I think a lot of the hand-wringing about how Black people choose to participate in politics, and I think a lot of the implicit messaging that indicates Black people are expected to somehow save an electorate that of which we've never been full participants in, I think speaks to one of the consequences, right, of not upset political messaging about Black people and to Black people that denies them the full scope of their experiences, thus denying them that humanity. We cannot be full participants until we're at least viewed as full humans uh, within that politically imagined space. Uh, Davin, what you say about spaces really strikes me. um, After doing an interview with Nicole Mauritanio about her book about Virginia as a Confederate monument. I I took a detour after visiting my mother to Monument Avenue to see the reclamation of the statues there. And and there was this sort of circle drawn around the Robert E. Lee statue. It included these, you know, handmade testaments to victims of police violence. It had people standing on the monument, making black power uh, symbols, people weeping, people smiling, like with their families all sort of together. And it it was interesting because it was a circle. And it was as if there was this one tiny little space in which you could imagine expressing yourself. But the fact that it was so small and that it was one reclaimed from white supremacy really struck me as, well... So sad, and and it's so so profound of how it stands out. And I think listening to you and Christina describe that um, uh, the space of teaching from uh, Black and Brown's perspective is just is is is, is, is it's astonishingly um, moving. So I'll try to keep myself together here. Um, you've all already heard from Frank, but and and most people know who he is. But let me introduce him more formally. Um, Frank B. Wilderson is professor and chair of the African-American Studies program, as well as professor in the Culture and Theory PhD uh, department at the University of California, Irvine. Dr. Wilderson spent five and a half years in South Africa, where he was one of two Americans elected to the African National Congress in 1992. By day, he conducted ANC business and taught college literature. By night, he worked underground in the ANC's military arm. His journal became the basis of his first book, Incognito, a memoir of exile and apartheid, which won an American Book Award in 2008. Dr. Wilderson's Red, White, and Black, published by Duke, provided an unflinching account of race and representation in film, emphasizing three essential subject positions, the white settler, master, and human, the red, savage, and half-human, and the black, slave, and non-human. I talked with Frank on New Books and Political Science in June about his new 2020 book from Live Right, Afro-Pessimism. The book argues that the social construct of slavery, as seen through pervasive anti-Black subjugation and violence, permeates our principled and practical assumptions. Slavery is not a relic, but a worldview that supports our conception of, for example, what it means to be human. For Wilderson, Blacks remain slaves in the human world because, quote, at every scale of abstraction, violence saturates Black life. 
to define what means to be human, we require people who are slaves. Frank, Afro-pessimism was published two months before the murders of Mr. George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. In an interview with The Guardian, you said that the murder of George Floyd in the socially democratically oriented city of Minneapolis seems like a scene out of Dixie, but the structure of anti-Black violence, even in a bastion of liberalism, had been a soup of gratuitous violence long before Floyd was murdered. Would you elaborate a bit on how Afro-pessimism as a concept and as a book helps us more fully grasp the meaning and possible responses to these recent deaths, the protests, and the sort of general state that we find not just in the United States, but beyond? Thank you, Susan. Well, I think that uh, one of the perhaps most unsatisfactory aspects of Afro-pessimism is that it does not provide anything on the level of prescription or, 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 or prognosis. It's a, it's a diagnosis of suffering. And the reason for that is because in critical theory, there is an assumptive logic embedded in the, the two major lenses of interpretation. I would call them um, Marxism or political economy and um, psychoanalytic feminism. And so there's a, there's a division between these two lenses of interpretation. One would say that the way people suffer, people who suffer, essentially suffer economic deprivation. And the other would say, no, suffering is essentially uh, gendered deprivation by way of patriarchy and heterosexism. And so without going into a long disquisition, I would just say that the arguments are that in every lens of interpretation, there's an assumption, even if the people don't understand themselves because they might not be theorists, they might be activists, but there's an assumption in every rhetorical gesture as to what is or what constitutes inaugural division. And in the activist world, at the end of the day, even when people are talking about race and class, uh, race and, and, and ethnicity, most people would say the, the rhetorical foundation of most arguments, if you read them symptomatically, is that at, the, at base is, a, is an inaugural division between the haves and the have-nots. And one of the things that Afro-pessimism argues is that inaugural division in any stratified world is essentially founded on the division between those who are socially alive and those who are socially dead. And what this, what this makes us do is to reconfigure our understanding of slavery. And we have pilfered from Orlando Patterson's 1982 tome, Slavery and Social Death, in which he argues that until I came along, until this book came along, Slavery and Social Death, there have been all kinds of, the archive is full of books about slavery and books that purport to define slavery. But what I, Orlando Patterson, am doing as a corrective is showing that these books that define slavery have actually been grounded less in a definition of a relational dynamic, because a relational dynamic is not something you can reach out and touch and see. Relational dynamic is immaterial. And so what they have been doing is they have been giving us reportage on the experience 
that most slaves have had and not have and have not defined slavery in its in its terms of, of relationality. And so the point that he makes is that, and this is a point, there are places where we disagree with Orlando Patterson, but foundationally this is very important in terms of an agreement, that any paradigm of oppression, there are many paradigms of oppression, from indigeneity to post-colonialism to uh, class, in every paradigm of, of oppression, begins with what is seen, seems to be gratuitous violence. I mean, a, a violence that is senseless and seems to have no purpose. But at the moment that the people in the paradigm have reconfigured themselves psychically in these new positions, a new position would be a position that did not exists before the paradigm was instantiated. So before the paradigm of capitalism, there are no workers, there are no capitalists. But the moment when the global terrain has been saturated by the relational dynamic of capitalism is the moment when you cannot go anywhere in the world and be outside of the wage surplus value accumulation dichotomy. And it also is a moment when everywhere in the world People have, people see themselves, have inculcated in their gut, in the very basis of their unconscious, themselves as members of the working class. And it's at that particular moment, I'm using capitalism as only one example because we don't have enough time to go through all of them. But at that particular moment, the gratuitous nature of the violence that was needed to set the paradigm up, to make it a global hegemonic way of relating that violence goes into remission, goes under the table, and it rears its ugly head when the subalterns in the paradigm transgress against the rules of the symbolic order of that paradigm. Now, the very difference, though, between the paradigm of gender, of, of um, class oppression, the difference between those types of paradigms and the paradigm of slavery as long as we're on track with not thinking about slavery as people being whipped, thinking, not thinking about slavery as people being in chains, not thinking about slavery as a historical moment in time, but thinking about slavery in its abstract relational dynamic, which is to say with its three constituent elements, which is NATO alienation, which means that no matter what the slave thinks about him or her, herself or themselves, in other words, if the slave thinks, I have genealogical integrity, I have a mother, I have a father, I have uncles, I have aunts. That is part of the slave's psyche, but the world does not give the slave recognition and or incorporation into a kinship structure. That's the most important thing, what the world gives, not what the slave thinks. So NATO alienation is one, and general dishonor is the other, which is to say that the slave is dishonored not in the slave's actions of transgression against the paradigm, but the slave is, dis is dishonored prior to acting, which is a very different dynamic than the way in which dishonor could be translated into capitalism, being a bad worker, going on strike, supporting the Cuban revolution. Okay, Those are all symbolic transgressions. The slave is dis dishonored prior to acting. And the final thing, which makes the slavery paradigm irreconcilable with the other paradigms of suffering 
is that the nature of violence needed to set up the paradigm of slavery never goes into remission. This has been the hardest thing for Black politicos and um, Black memorists, especially during the 19th century, to grapple with. And it was the hardest thing for Marx to grapple with. There are eight times in Das Kapital, in the volume one, in which he kind of alludes to the, um, the dissonance between his idea that violence is to motivate productivity and what he has seen when he was working for the New York Herald for two years in New York in terms of violence being a bacchanal of pleasure, violence being a way of building community amongst non-Black people as opposed to violence having a utilitarian purpose for productivity. Violence, in the words of David Marriott, anti-Black violence is absolutely necessary. It's not a form of discrimination. It's a necessary ensemble of rituals that must continue if the world is to know itself as world against the non-world of the slave. And so the basic thing that we would argue, and I think that my book is trying to get across, is that regardless of the uh, time, that anti-Black violence is a necessary ensemble of ritualistic performances that produce psychic health for the rest of the world. And this means that we must draw a distinction between white supremacy and anti-Blackness. And it also means that at the level of paradigm, if the paradigm were to actually recognize and incorporate Black being as human being, then the paradigm itself would combust from the inside out. And so we would argue that the word Black as that which designates a social formation, and the word Africa as that which designates a cartographic location, don't have prior moments of subjective plenitude. In other words, there are people in the world, every group of people in the world have been enslaved. And before that, they were not slaves. But there is no prior narrative moment of black sociality before the instantiation of social death. And that the instantiation of social death that produces blackness is a necessary process to which 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 is a symbiotic process that produces human relations on a global scale. And so we have to begin to start looking at the police shootings as not forms of discriminatory, unlawful acts, but as lynching rituals which constitute a sense of ah for everyone else in the world. If that were to happen to me, and it could and it has, I would have to transgress some of the rules of my subjugation. But I am relieved as a non-Black person in my internal psyche because that happens to them as a practice, as something that is necessary to constitute my world as world. And it doesn't require 
transgression. So I'll stop there and because and, there's a lot more, but it's drawing the line between gratuitous violence, which is what the slave is positioned by, and contingent violence, which is what non-Black people who are oppressed are positioned by, and then drawing a very fine line, theoretically, between white supremacy and anti-Blackness because of this nature of violence that cannot be reconciled. It's so interesting, um, Frank, to, to, to think about what you're raising. I'm, I'm so interested in the way I think we have to think about the pleasures that and the, and the subject production that I think you're making us think about the way that that violence actually creates um, a sense of whiteness, a sense of identity, a sense of citizenship, right? Um, in, in the populations you're, um, you're speaking about. I was, um, I, I just had a thought and a question about this because I think that one thing that Afro-pessimism lets us think about, and it's both what my students find most powerful and also what they struggle with the most, is that your analysis is asking us to sit with loss and just reckon with the tragic. Right, that there's no redemption that it can account for the violence and the loss. Right, that the millions lost are the millions lost. And to really sit with the tragedy that anti-blackness and anti-black violence has wrought, um, I think that is. Um, I just think that so goes against um, our, our our liberal desires for liberal narratives of progress and liberal narratives of redemption. Um, and my, you know, and I always say, you know, our students are, our, I think my students are, are very much liberals and they, they want to, they, they, they hang on to those, to those, to those narratives of, of progress and redemption and hope. And so they, to really sit with the loss, I think of, um, I'm sort of an Arendtian in this way. And I, I always think of thinking about whenever I teach the human condition, I always want them to think about the fact that, um, when, when, a, when people are, you know, every human, when, when Arendt says every human being is unlike any other human being who will ever exist, to really reckon with that means that when they are murdered, when they are gone, they will never be here again. So whatever they were going to create will never exist. It's gone. Um, and for you to really think about genocidal regimes or regimes of chattel slavery, and to really think about the depth of the loss um, that nothing can make up for white supremacy, what white supremacy has wrought, right? I think that um, that gesture for um, our students who often want a prescription, or for I think for liberal readers and all of us in many ways, who you know want a want a um, I don't know want a prescription or want a want a want a um, a, a clear way out to um, to sit with the tragic, to really reckon with the tragic that 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 this is pointing to. I think is um, is just incredibly. I think it's both an incredibly important gesture and a really hard gesture um, for for um, for folks to sort of reckon with. I mean, I think I think there there are other things around white supremacy that um, that I think might be less recursive. But but I but I guess um, I don't know. I just wanted to I just wanted to say that as somebody who's who's taught your work to think about how um, how um, how difficult it's I've found it for students to sit with tragedy to just sit with the tragic we talk about tragedy and political theory all the time but to really sit with the tragic um is such a challenge um yeah and Frank I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a little comment slash question on on top of Christina's I, you know, as, as I read the book and it's a little couple of months ago but if if I took it correctly 
you would see George Floyd's murder as not some potential moment for change, redemption, and rethinking, but just kind of part of a continual narrative. He's, it, it wouldn't be a special event. It would be simply a continuation. Is that, am I getting you right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, in, in The Wretch of the Earth, which is a book that I like second to Black Skin, White Mass. And the reason for that is because I, I believe that, that when Fanon wrote Black Skin, White Mask, he was really uh, grappling with uh, Black suffering. And that when he went to Algeria, not, not that Fanon would, would rise up from the grave today, I want to be very clear, <laughs> and say, oh, thank you to, the, to David Marriott and Frank Wilderson and um, you know, Lynette Park and all the people who have used his work. I think that he would be rather horrified because he was a humanist and we're anti-humanists. Um, but, I, but I do believe that, that the cul-de-sacs in Black Skin, White Mass um, show something about black vi- anti-black violence and black suffering that you're pointing to with, with the George Floyd murder that I think get kind of left behind in the wretch of the earth. But there is one thing in the, because in the wretch of the earth, he's, he's grounding suffering with a coherent, tangible um, concept, which we in semiotics we call third-term mediators, which is the loss of land. And I believe that that black suffering is an effect of absence, I mean, more than loss. In other words, I believe that you cannot actually write a sentence about what black people have lost. It's totalizing. I believe with every other group, you can actually write, not that they will get it back, but you could write a sentence that there are cultural losses, there's land loss, um, and the Native Americans should have everything from the tip of Peru all the way up to the top of, of Alaska. That's a, that's a conceptually coherent concept of loss. But I think for blackness, that's not possible. And as a result, what we have is a situation in which um, we get a lot of, let me go back to the, to the um, let me reset. The redemption is a thing that can happen if there was a loss that could be known. So that's one thing. And since there's not a loss that could be known for the black as slave, then the narrative arc of politics, which is always an arc of restoration or resurgence at the denouement, the final stages, so it's a, a redemptive act. That's that is a that's not possible. But b it means that the the structure of redemption for everyone else. This is why I would split the hair between white supremacy and anti-blackness. The structure of redemption for everyone else depends upon there not being a structure of redemption for the 21st century slave. And it's that divide that has to keep that has to keep going through acts of violence like what happened to George Floyd or Jacob Blake or or um, Nina Pop, the transgender woman. I mean, so it's really funny, and not in a ha-ha way, but in a peculiar way, the way in which if you track the explosion of 
snuff films, the videos that capture these things, you would suggest, you would think that with any other group, uh, the graft of these of these uh, iPhone snippets going up and up and up and up in numbers would have an effect on the empathic condition of the world so that the there would be a kind of intervention which would show that there would be an opposite graph line for the murders going down. But what you find is that the murders and the visual capture of them are tracking the same upward arc on a graph, which means that in the libidinal economy, in the collective unconscious, it's not possible to inculcate or to juxtapose, rather, it's not possible to juxtapose suffering with blackness in the collective unconscious. Now, the collective preconscious, that warehouse of data that is available to speech, will always say, I see black people, black lives matter. There are all kinds of black lives matter signs around University Hills here in Irvine. Uh, but I really don't believe that the psyche essentially believes that. And the, and the, the most horrifying thing is that the anti-black psyche cuts through everyone's mind. And this is what David Marriott's work in on lynching and photography has helped us understand is that, and this is part of what I was trying to get at in the opening chapter of my book with respect to um, the nervous breakdown that I had at UC Berkeley in grad school, that at any given moment, the, the ego ideal of the unconscious, whether that unconscious is native, whether that unconscious is Latinx, whether that unconscious is black, whether that unconscious is white, the, the ego ideal of the unconscious aspires to the light and wants to garrison or destroy the dark blackness. And so even as I'm having this nervous breakdown, my central concern is not my psychic health, but the fear that my crying and my bulk and my color is engendering in the nurse and the doctor. And that's a structural analysis of what I would believe, you know, the world. So, yeah, I think that um, a woman who I knew who was married to uh, a soldier in the Black Liberation Army, she's white, we were on a march, and she once said to me, um, I'm doing everything for him. And we have the same politics. We both hate this country. We're not trying to redeem this country. You want to destroy it. And yet he hates me in my being. And I have no, I, I, and I've come to understand that if you drop a stone into the well of black hatred, that you will never hear it hit the water. And that by the same token, I think that the other side is true also, is that if there was a, if there was a well of empathy and you dropped it into that well for the rest of the world, you would never be able to hit the water in which the world could then empathize with blackness as a subjective position and say that black people suffer. I simply don't believe that that's possible. Davin. Uh, thanks, Frank. I've had a number of questions that you actually have answered remarks, but I keep going back to one of the first things you said, which is that this is um, a diagnosis of suffering that's not prescriptive, but 
it seems to me maybe I'm just too much of a positivist of hearing <laughs> prescriptions, right? Even if they're not the way we kind of generally conceive them, which is like, okay, here are the prescribed action plans or steps to take. What I'm hearing is here are reasons why these typically prescribed solutions are not indeed solutions, right? So for instance, when you were kind of breaking down a little bit further how we shouldn't conflate white supremacy with anti-Blackness, I thought about how instructive that is for ways of thinking about political coalitions or any kind of coalition, right, across groups of color or kind of that um, interracial solidarity organizing. Like, it seems like there's a lot being said about just won't work. And do you see that as not prescriptive or maybe just, I'm just curious to hear more of your thoughts on that kind of framing. Well, you've actually, uh, uh, it's like uh, when Dorothy draws the curtain against the Wizard of Oz and we see it's just a little man behind there with a machine. So you, <laughs> you've actually kind of hit the nail on the head. I mean, I avoid, um, unless I'm in an all-black setting, actually talking about prescription. And um, you've uh, pushed me into what I would try to avoid. So I'm going to have to talk to you about this. <laughs> I'm trying to thank you in a backhanded manner here. <laughs> <laughs> Look, the prescription is the end of the world. It's, and, and the problem with articulating that is the moment that you say that, then, or the moment that I've said that on radio shows, but it, it, as opposed to the moment that I've said it, when I've done uh, political education workshops for, say, 35 um, leaders of Black Lives Matter in what was the Audubon Ballroom, um, or at the Tate Museum in New York, sorry, in London, or in Toronto, or in, in Montreal, you see, the anxiety of, if I say the end of the world, then typically in an, in an all-Black setting where it's an intramural conversation and the people have have invited me because they've read Afro-pessimism, the response is not, whoa, 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 wait a minute, what exactly does that look like? Okay. The first response tends to be one of emotional joy. And so I choose not to go there um, in settings like this or because I've because I'm hit with a kind of literal empirical um, question to be answered and what i and what i'm really up against is in the question in the interlocutor is not the actual um surface information of the question what i'm actually up against is what jared sexton calls the anxiety of antagonism and this gets back to it resonates with something that christina was saying in other words what we are trained to do as people who have been trained by the pedagogy of Anglo-American education. This is, I, and I found this not to be as much the case in other parts of the world, but that we're trained to juxtapose problems with some kind of idea of solutions. And I think that is one of the worst things that can happen to a revolutionary intellectual, um, because what happens is that regardless of what the person thinks they're doing, the responses that they give when, they're, when a diagnosis of a problem is shackled to a demand for some type of resolution is that the language then gets bound up 
in the very paradigm that is oppressing them. And I do not believe that that's useful. Uh, it ends up with, um, whether the person knows it or not, it ends up with, dis with a discursive intervention that is not revolutionary, but is reformist. And I don't, so that's one thing. The other thing is that even if I wanted to say something more concrete or more specific than the end of the world, given the foundation of the first principles of the argument that there is a division between those with sociality, meaning humans, and those without, that means that I don't believe, like Elijah Muhammad, that that is, that that is divine, that the white man is a devil. I do believe that it was constructed but I also don't believe that in the episteme, which is, say, the dome of knowledge, or the dome of possible knowledge combinations under which we live, that you cannot actually write a sentence given the, the epistemological tools of the paradigm that you're in about the paradigm that is to come after this paradigm is destroyed. And what I find in a mixed room is that, um, let me take a step back, what I find in all black rooms, typically people can become more excited and joyful about a scorched earth kind of imaginary. Whereas in a mixed room, that is, the reins are drawn in so that that cannot be what gives us joy. What has to give us joy or what has to be the motivating factor is concrete reforms or concrete changes that can be articulated. And I don't think that's good enough for black suffering. Well, um, Frank, thank you so much. Uh, Christine, I've put you in a terrible spot. We'd <laughs> no, love no, to fine. follow that. Um, but let me formally introduce you since everyone has already heard from you. But uh, Dr. Christina Beltran is an associate professor and director of graduate studies in the Department of Social and Cultural Analysis at NYU. She's also associate faculty in the Department of Politics, recently in the news for not having any permanent black faculty. And Dr. Beltran regularly provides political commentary for MSNBC. In her first award-winning book, The Trouble with Unity, Latin, Latino Politics and the Creation of Identity, she offered an original and theoretically driven account of the Chicano and Puerto Rican movement of the 1960s and 70s, in which she argued that labeling all Latinx voters as the Latino vote erased essential political diversity. Her new book, Cruelty as Citizenship, How Migrant Suffering Sustains White Democracy, is forthcoming from the University of Minnesota and it'll be out this fall. We're going to have a full podcast devoted to her book coming soon. Uh, Christina insists that we cannot fully understand contemporary American debates about immigration, violence at the border, or the turn towards authoritarianism without inter interrogating longstanding American conceptions of frontier freedom that combine racialized practices of conquest and disposition with participatory forms of settlement and democratic civic renewal. For the majority of its history, the United States should be understood as a white democracy, a polity ruled in the interests of a white citizenry and characterized by simultaneous relations of equality and privilege, equality among whites, who are privileged in relation to those who are not white. Um, Christina, this is all new work that you've been completing, uh, I guess, 
partly before um, the murder of George Floyd and the rise of the protests, or was the manuscript already already in the uh, handed in? It was almost finished. Um, and then I immediately also wanted to incorporate, I felt like a lot of what I had been talking about was reflected in what was going on. And so um, fortunately, because it's the Forerunner series, I was able to make some interventions towards the end, which was which was um, which was great. A great opportunity to get to do that. Um, although awful in the sense, of course, that this is the reaffirmations that you know that we're talking about. Well, I have a bunch of questions, but now that we're at the end of the podcast and everything had has come uh, has been said has been said, I, I think I'm going to reframe this and just give you an opportunity to give us a little bit of the claim of the new book but perhaps in light of Afro-pessimism, because it seems to me, as I was able to read as much of the book as I could last night, uh, thanks for sending it as an ebook. Um, you ha- you have overlap with, mm-hmm. with Frank Wilderson, but you also have pushback from him. And so, uh, and you have a lot to say about, we know from, from, from your TV appearances about today's contemporary events. So I'm just going to throw it open to you to, 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 to talk to us about, about why, why not just thinking about anti-Blackness, but why also thinking about the experiences of Latinx gives us a much more nuanced view. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Um, I think there's so much to say, and my, my mind is moving in all these different directions from the conversation we've had. Um, and I think that um, one point that, that Frank was making that I think is so um, and Davin's points as well. This, but I think the thinking about um, anti-black violence as constitutive, and I think thinking for me wanting to talk about, um, I had actually been writing on Latino conservatives um, before I began this book, um, and before the election of Donald Trump, and I had been sort of interested in um, the sort of neoliberal multiculturalism of Latinx conservatives and folks like Marco Rubio and. Um, the the Libre Institute um, and, and and organizations like that, and it was really trying to it was it was both the 2016 election and then after, and really trying to make sense that everybody kept talking about anti migrant violence and and all this deep anti immigrant sentiment circulating, but it felt like we described it and we kept naming oh there's all this anti immigrant sentiment, but we never really talked about well what's inside of it like wh- why what is driving that that deep, intense, visceral hostility. And so for me, that was something I really wanted to unpack. And a lot of it led me to thinking about um, particular practices of white supremacy and thinking about, and I think one thing that this conversation has made me think about is the way that my work doesn't completely pull apart and in fact conflates anti-blackness and white supremacy. That I see white supremacy in the, in the, well, in the U.S. and the global context, but I see white supremacy is so embedded in anti-black and anti-blackness that that I that for me they ended up being in some ways described um, synonymously. Um, and what it might mean and what it does mean to pull them apart is something that this conversation is making me me think about. But but I also wanted to think about the fact that as we theorize white supremacy and we think about other populations like Latinx populations that we have to also, you can't think about anti-migrant or anti-Latinx violence without thinking about anti-Blackness. Like these things live within and through each other historically in ways that you can't simply um, 
describe them as separate, right? So trying to sort of think about how they, how they feed into each other. And also by looking at the specificity of particular histories, you also have to trace out the way that those violences are enacted, the way that they move with and against those traditions. Um, so for me, there was something important about thinking about um, the specificity of, of 1848, the Mexican-American War, um, the sort of layered colonialism of Spain and then the U.S. Uh, and the creation of certain kinds of indigenous um, populations. So I wanted to sort of think through those questions. And one of the things that I wanted to think about was the way that, and this is something that Frank was talking about, is just the way that there's an, a, a sort of an ensemble, as he put it, of ritualistic uh, forms of violence that produce um, Frank described it as a kind of psychic health for the polity. I don't know if I call it psychic health. I, I would, it produces a psyche in my mind. Um, and that that paradigm um, would collapse in particular ways if it were, if it were fundamentally, if it were challenged in a, in a total way. Um, so, so one thing I was trying to think about is what is the, what is the performative cruelty that is so valuable around migrants? And it forced me to want to think about sort of the long history of indigenous dispossession, chattel slavery, Jim Crow, um, and to think about how all of those practices have shaped American conceptions of freedom, democracy, sovereignty, um, movement. And thinking about Du Bois's term of democratic despotism or what um, the political theorist Joel Olson calls the problem of the white citizen. And so trying to think about what it means to talk about America as a white democracy and to think about um, what I found really useful was trying to think about how the U.S.'s long history of being a country that on the one hand articulates liberal conceptions of the rule of law, equality, privilege, and, and thinking about those ideas of equality and the rule of law, not simply as hypocritical or, or not true because they didn't apply to everybody, but really thinking about how um, how they were, how those practices were actually built on and sustained by by um, assaults on non-white populations, right? By violence against non-white populations, and trying to think about this term, um, the term I sort of draw, I draw on a little bit is Heronvolk democracy, right? A regime that's democratic for the master race, but tyrannical for subordinate groups, and and for me, a lot of that is is thinking about the satisfaction that one can take in feeling like you are protected by individual rights and protected by the rule of law, but you get to also deny those rights to others. And that denying those rights is part of the pleasure of having those rights. Right. And I wanted to sort of, I wanted this project in sort of the short version, but to think about those questions um, in a deeper sense. And in some ways, I think those questions might seem relatively familiar to some populations and, and, and less familiar to others, but I wanted to sort of play that out around, uh, liberal conceptions of movement and thinking about migrants and thinking about populations that um, I wanted to take seriously um, the fact that non the fact that migrants are non citizens and and we can talk about the vexed role of citizenship another time but I do think that the fact that migrant populations as people who don't have U.S. citizenship become subject in particular ways. Um, but also thinking about, um, but for me, one of the things that interests me is the way that whiteness itself is is moving in different directions. And I think this might be a, a, an important place where Frank and I move in different directions is I'm interested 
um, in, in thinking about white identity in some of the ways that maybe someone like Linda Alcoff has been thinking about white identity um, and thinking about whiteness as a practice and white identity um, as a, as a practice, but trying to sort of think about the way that communities are shifting in, in, in ways that are both interesting and important, um, but also not to get caught up in a liberal narrative of, of transformation and redemption. Right. Like, but to really think seriously, and I think this is, you know, I'm, I'm going in a couple of different directions here, but I think that one of the things that, um, I'm trying to think about is on the one hand, the long, the long and deep history of anti-blackness and white supremacy and the way it works on, on, on various racialized populations. But I think that my conception of those things is, um, less totalizing and more perhaps Foucauldian than, than Frank's conception of those, of those questions. Um, and I think for me, one of the things that I try to um, think about is hanging my own sense of, um, of futurity and possibility on the logic of the new. Um, and I think for me, that's one of my definitions of the political is the political harbors the inaugural the possibility of an, an, an inaugural moment in which something new can occur. Now that newness doesn't mean it's not steeped and, and, and shaped in history. It, it, the new only emerges out of that, which has happened, which come before it. But there is something for me profound about the political as a site of the new that, that I think that we don't just live in a recursive state of repetition. Um, my argument in part is that I think that recursive state of repetition for me is partly the logic of the white imaginary, that the logic of white supremacy can only imagine a world that is recursive and repetitive. And so I want to um, think more about how the new is, is that, that our inability to think the new, our inability to maybe move towards the inaugural is also exactly what white supremacy wants. It wants to tell a story where it can only understand us under conditions of domination. Um, it can't understand new kinds of formations of plenitude, of abundance, of possibility. Um, and I think that is, um, for me, a story that it, it wants to, that, that there's something about the story of violence and whiteness that is both profoundly true, but also I think limited. And, and I think there's a, there's a much bigger story there about where I would want to go with thinking about Foucauldian capillaries of power and the cracks and possibilities um, that might take us somewhere in a different podcast. But, but those are some of the, the things that, that this work is thinking about. And a lot of it is about this sort of emotional space of, um, of the pleasures that people take in these Trump rallies, the pleasure that people take in violence, the pleasure that people take in seeing migrant suffering that on the one hand motivates some people to become horrified and mobilizes them into political action. And I see that with, you know, the George Floyd killings, there's people who take enormous pleasure in seeing those deaths. And there's also a global movement of people who are appalled by that. And I think that story of that political bifurcation is a really interesting story we need to understand um, better. Um, Christina, you're really unique in that you're one of the most discipline, disciplinary people I know. You're at every conference. You publish widely. 
you're engaged with your students, but then you have this sort of other life on MSNBC. You're, you're the only political theorist my brother knows the name of, for example. And I'm wondering if in this complex analysis that you have in the book, which I have to say I haven't finished reading, but is any of this being captured in the way that um, the Black Lives Matter protests or any of these individual deaths have been framed? Uh, There's a lot of talk about how the Democratic National Convention dealt with race in a very simplistic way. It just seemed to sort of emphasize uh, the, the sort of anti-blackness of the Democrat, I'm oh, sorry, not anti, anti-black racism of the Democratic Party, and and not really focus on the different shades of racism involving Latinx, involving uh, transgender, all, all the other kinds. So I'm wondering, do you see any piece of what you have established in this incredibly complex book of political theory actually making its way into the national discourse through any part of the press? Probably not. No. I mean, I think, I think this is my vexed feelings about punditry as a practice. I think it's, it's, it's great for us to, I mean, I, I, Davin's piece in the, in the times, like, I think it's really those interventions I think are so critical. Um, you know, watching, I mean, getting to watch Frank on C-SPAN, like, I think those sort of public intellectual spaces are, are valuable. And I'd be super curious to hear other people experience them. But, but for me, they also always reconfirm my desire to be an academic and to be able to stretch out and think in complex ways, um, in other sorts of settings because, or, or be able to have certain conversations as, as Frank was saying, there's certain kind of activist settings where you can have different kinds of conversations. And, and those tend to be so much richer and, and full of ambiguity and complexity than, than those sort of those, those television, um, 15, 30 second moments. Right. I think you can point people to, to, to helping people think about complexity and ambiguity. And I think, having different voices out there. I'll really always credit Melissa Harris Perry for um, bringing on so many um, academics of color on her show. And that's how I ended up doing this because she wanted to change the conversation. And I think that that is a, a real value, but I think the nature of the medium is just so limited and so wants you to, uh, it so primes people for only a certain set of conversations that I think it, it just, um, it, it, it's a deeply limited space. You see how people like Eddie Glaude um, from Princeton, you know, is trying to negotiate that. You see lots of folks, you know, doing what they can in those spaces. Um, and I think those are useful gestures. But I also think that um, sort of trying to have the kind of sustained conversations about um, about contingency, about the political, about, um, you know, the deep, you know, everything gets sort of pulled quickly into um I think to really understand the history of this country and to understand our own racial legacies requires such a sense of history and um, and depth of of, of 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 thinking about those those the violence and the, the dynamics of um, I can't even articulate it right now, but I mean just to really reckon with those things, to really reckon with loss, and to really reckon with absence, to really reckon with the violence that we're dealing with is very difficult in the context of, of a media that, that demands short, quick answers to things. And so I think it's just a very limited, I think it's just a very limited space. And I think conservatism, right-wing politics 
even our social media structure is so much about quick, you know, quick Twitter threads and everything is about speed and, and so, and quickness and shortness and brevity. And so I think, I think right wing claims actually lend themselves to that in a way that the kind of conversations we want to have, where you say something like, you know, let's talk about the end of the world. Let's talk about growing under devastation. Let's talk about futurity in the context of endings. How do you have those conversations? I think it's just a very limited format. So I'm always glad to participate in them, but I'm also uh, suspicious of them myself um, and, and, not, and not committed to an idea that they, they, they do more than they, they claim to do. Well, I, I want to thank the three of you for, for joining us. Uh, Lily and I had high hopes for this series. We're just getting it off the ground. And I think uh, you have proven that getting people back in the room together to talk about that the work that they've been doing for years and reflecting together can work. And hopefully people will listen to conversations like this and move past those 30-second snippets that they can get on television or the uh, quick exchanges on Twitter that are not always as thoughtful as they might be. Uh, That said, I would say that following this group on social media is a great idea. And I'm going to remind uh, listeners that we have three great books, two out and one to look forward to. Uh, Davin Phoenix's The Anger Gap, How Race Shapes Emotion in Politics, Cambridge 2019, Frank Wilderson's Afro-Pessimism from Live Right 2020, and we will have Cruelty as Citizenship, How Migrant Suffering Sustains White Democracy coming out from University of Minnesota Press in 2020. Um, I'd like all of these books, uh, well, not yet, Christina's, are available on the University Press websites. They are on and Live Rights Workshop uh, and a, a website. And I am also encouraging uh, listeners to use bookshop.org, which uh, supports our brick and mortar bookstores um, and provides reasonable prices and you get it delivered to your door. So they're not paying me to say that, but I've been using them and I think they're great. Frank, Christina, Davin, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for your candor and um, and your insights. I, I, I learned so much. I have tons of notes here. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure.